Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, episode number 80. I can't believe it. 80 amazing episodes. And today we are talking about critical control points and critical limits. And this, like, is this there's so much good information here. You need to get yourself a pen and a paper and like take notes. Listen to the podcast a bunch of times. If you know anybody who's having a problem with critical control points or critical limits or whatever, um, this is the podcast to listen to. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you on the inside. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Development Institute podcast, where we serve up truth so that you can build the profitable, sustainable food business you've always dreamed of. Now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steel. Alrighty, hello my friends. Uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful day here uh, in Maine. It is 3 o'clock Eastern Time and... Um, Time to do the podcast. So uh, today's podcast is going to be super amazing. So tune the heck on in because we have lots of um, we have lots of stuff that we have to talk about. So we are going to talk about um, we're going to continue. So the the podcast topic for today is talking about critical control points and critical limits. Um, going on the how to write a HACCP plan theme that we've been doing for several, I guess, more than a quarter now. Um, and so we're going to be talking about that. This follows up from the podcast number, and go check, 76, Justifying Your Decisions in Your Hazard Analysis. So um, it, there's, a, there's a whole set of work that leads up to what we're talking about today. Um, and if you haven't been doing that work, I want you to go back and listen to the podcast. You can catch them on YouTube. You can find them here on the Proofing Box. So join us on the Proofing Box if you haven't and you're not listening to this live. Because we started HACCP planning um in episode oh heavens uh or step three uh episode planning uh back on november 14th the five pre steps of food safety planning was intro and step one so that was way the heck back on um the 14th of november so um that's how far back this process goes so there's time obviously i've done a lot of different things since then um but this is a continuation of the hasset planning podcast that we have been doing so today's uh hasset planning or i guess but real podcast topic is um is uh ccps and critical limits which is kind of the point of writing a hasset plan right uh and then i am doing office hours uh, after this, and we're talking about mobile slaughter. I am probably going to turn that into a mini so to get released this weekend. But as we are living through this coronavirus, and as I start talking to people and recognizing the sheer volume of uh, response that local food has been able to put into the system, like, Local food is really stepping up. Local meat processors are completely slammed. Like I have one, I have one client where all he's doing is producing bacon. I have other clients who just 
can't can't kill anything fast enough. And so I've had a ton of people this week actually, now that we're sort of looking at this new normal and we've seen the closures of the JBS and the Cargill plants and things like that, want to talk to me about slaughter and processing and that sort of thing. And so that's what we're going to talk about in office hours today. Uh, other uh, other news and notes, we did a really great um, uh, webinar yesterday on approved supplier programs. Those are only archived on the proofing box page. So if you missed that, uh, it's on, it's archived on the proofing box page. Come watch that. We've actually had a ton of people already watch that. Uh, and if you are interested in taking that work further, of course, I do run a business, guys, <laughs> and you can um, certainly get in touch with me. I've had a ton of people booking consult calls, and those are the calls by which you get on the phone with we, me and we make a ton of decisions about not only what are you doing out in the world, um, but whether or not I'm the right person to help you. Uh, so, and which resources would be the right ones for you, because we do have a lot here at Durgo Food Safety. And so I just want to make you aware of that. So you can always uh, book a blueprint call and that's like, I don't know, that's pinned to the, that's, it's really easy to find or you just DM me or find me. I'm not, I'm not going searching for you. It's pretty obvious how to do that. So, um, so that's what, uh, that's what we've got. And I would like to reiterate my offer to veterans, you know, coming into the power group and getting into our system and working with me is actually priced at pay what you think it is worth. Okay, and I'm really dead serious about that. I have, I, I know what it's, I know what it's worth, uh, and I was talking with one of my very favorite veterans this morning, and the sheer amount of um, brain space that he has saved by working with me has allowed him to really solidify his business in a time where local food needs to be solidifying their business, and it's been really gratifying and amazing. So if you are a veteran or you know a veteran, get in touch with me and let's get you in. And I am totally dead serious on that pay what you think it's worth. Okay, it's a super amazing value. So with that, I want to talk about our friends, critical control points and critical limits. Uh, okay, so <sighs> HACCP planning uh, is, of course, hazard analysis for critical control points, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and when we talk about critical control points, um, we do it for a reason. So way back when, and I'm not gonna go back and look at which, which episodes it was, but way back when we started talking about the five pre-steps of food safety planning, one of those pre-steps is um, drawing out your process flow diagram, right? And we draw out our process flow diagram because we have to know what we are doing, you know? And it's always receive stuff, store stuff, um, process stuff in whatever way that you do, okay? And then you do um, packaging and labeling and you do finished product storage and you get rid of it, all right? And if it was all that easy, it would be all that easy, but it's not necessarily all that easy, okay? Because when you think about it, that process stuff is how you guys make all your money, okay? But it is also the very most likely place where you are enhancing or controlling um, for 
foodborne illness, four hazards, okay? So those physical, chemical, microbial things that can go wrong with the food, okay? And a critical control point is something that, well, controls, <laughs> right? Like it controls for those foodborne illness, which means that it reduces or eliminates um, a foodborne illness to a, um, acceptable level, which may be nothing. Okay. So you're not allowed to put like, whether you write a HACCP plan or not, I want to make this super clear, whether you write a HACCP plan or not, you are not allowed to put adulterated food into the food stream. Okay. So end full stop. All right. Whether or not you are required to do food safety documentation, adulterated food, not allowed to go in the food stream. So as long as we're clear on that. Next, um, just because you think a point in your process flow diagram controls for a hazard doesn't actually mean it does control for a hazard, okay? And so that's what we are diving into today on the um, on the podcast. Okay. So this is one of those that you're probably going to want to listen to multiple times. Get yourself, Hey, one of our handy dandy. And if you want these, if you want one of these, just let me know. I send these out. Okay. So these are our fun Dirgo food safety note taking, um, uh, I guess notebooks. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, take notes on this because this is, can be really confusing. All right. So let's start with what the definition of a critical control point is. It is, and this is a legal definition guys, any action designed to prevent, reduce to an acceptable level or eliminate a hazard. All right. And that was the definition created by the national, uh, association for, the NACMCF and the MCF is the microbiological criteria of foods. Um, and this is the subset of the really smart people in our government who tell us what things we have to worry about in our foods. Okay. So these would be the people that are going to tell us at some point, whether or not salmonella is going to be a hazard reasonably likely to occur in beef. And we're going to hope they say no. Okay. So, a critical control point, all right, is any action. So the action is what's on your process flow diagram, okay? So cooking is an action. And for most people, if you cook, it is designated as a critical control point, okay? We must, by legal definition, especially if you're USDA, all right, but also if you're FDA, if you have a hazard that is reasonably likely to occur, thou shalt control for it. Now, under FDA, we control for it through what they call preventive controls. And under USDA or fisheries HACCP, which is FDA, we control for it using critical control points, uh, okay? And we only do this if the hazard is reasonably likely to occur. Okay. And so for not every hazard is reasonably likely to occur. So if you go back to your hazard analysis and you listed, um, uh, let's see here, you listed, let's just look at physical hazards cause they're easy. You listed, um, you have boxed beef coming in and you listed metal shards, 
um, as a hazard you had to consider. All right, I assure you, metal shards are uh, not reasonably likely to occur because it probably never occurred in your facility. Um, and um, you, um, and, and they've never occurred in your facility by virtue of your uh, approved supplier program, right? That's what we covered yesterday in the webinar. So watch the webinar. All right, and so we are. Um, so, so if you're if your hazard is not reasonably likely to occur, you don't have to control for it, and that's why we have good manufacturing practices. Okay, because good manufacturing practices make hazards not reasonably likely to occur. All right. However, there are hazards that are reasonably likely to occur. And a lot of these look like allergens, <laughs> okay? A lot of these look like um, pathogens in our foods, salmonella, shigatoxin E. coli, trichinella, that sort of thing, okay? And those you have to control for because they are reasonably likely to occur and no good manufacturing practices, all right, can um, keep them from occurring in your food because NACMCF has told us that they are reasonably likely to occur, all right? If a hazard is reasonably likely to occur, then you have to control for it, all right? And we control for it using preventive controls or critical control points, all right? So when you determine that a hazard is significant and reasonably likely to occur, because remember we talked about hazard significance when we did hazard analysis, then you write a CCP for it, all right? Now, here's the thing though, is that your, your process flow diagram has 15 different steps or whatever, okay? Those 15 different steps are all there for a reason, but only the ones that are critical are the CCPs. But you still have all the other ones, and we just call those CPs, control points, because you are doing something there or else it wouldn't be in your process flow diagram, right? So for example, um, we talk about CPs as, as things that make a difference in quality as opposed to safety, all right? So um, when, we are, when we are talking about this in a, um, uh, here's a really good one, okay? The difference between cooling and freezing is quality, not safety, okay? So cold storage is very, 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 infrequently, so not often, is cold storage a critical control point, okay? Cooking is very often a critical control point because if you do that wrong, all sorts of things can happen. And cooling very often is a critical control point because if you do that wrong, clostridium perfringens is likely to happen, okay? So you can have lots of different points in your process flow diagram but not all of them are critical control points, all right? So if you go back to your hazard analysis, I want you to remember that all of your significant hazards must be controlled, okay? But they are not necessarily uh, controlled all at the same point, okay? So, or, and they're not necessarily controlled where they're introduced. So. Um, at receiving, unless you're doing fisheries, we never have receiving as a critical control point because there it's you can't you can't control for anything at receiving really. Yeah, uh, all right. Um, 
but you're still introducing hazards. So salmonella and uh, trichinellosis in pork, those two hazards, if say you are making um, pork barbecue, um, those two hazards are controlled for at cooking. So it's one critical control point cooking that controls for two different kinds of hazards. That happens all the time in HACCP planning, okay? So I just want you to be able to be flexible in your mind to understand that your, um, that your critical control points, one critical control point can control for more than one hazard, and hazards can also be controlled for at more than one step. So if you're doing poultry slaughter, for example, so like I'm gonna be talking about mobile slaughter in just a minute at office hours. If you're doing poultry slaughter, we control for Salmonella and Campylobacter at multiple different steps during poultry slaughter. We control for them um, in the um, after we wash, like after plucking, all right. Um, and we control for it there. We wash it again before we do carcass chill. We can wash it. We can control for it at if you air dry your carcasses. All of those things help create what we call a multi-hurdle effect for both Salmonella and Campylobacter. Okay. Those are some examples of CCPs. So now we have, I wanna bring your attention to some critical control point best practices. One of the things that can happen when you're writing a HACCP plan is you can do your steps backwards. Okay, so for example, you, um, let's see here, you are washing, this actually happened to me, so this is the example I use all the time. Uh, washing chickens, some, okay, and you've got one of those fancy lines where you have the chickens going around and there's a hose, but you're washing them with water and not acid, okay, just to like remove feathers and all of that sort of stuff because chicken slaughtering is a mess, and you decide that because there's a hose there, it's a critical control point. No, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that is not, that is not true, all right. So be very careful of building your critical control points backwards. Okay, just because you do something somewhere doesn't actually make it a critical control point. Moving cold carcasses from one place to another and not changing the temperature, very unlikely to create a critical control point. If you are aging cheese, you don't have any critical control points by and large after day 60 because if you're aging raw milk cheese, um, because after day 60, we consider all those hazards uh, as controlled uh, because that's what the law has told us. Okay. So just be aware that um, you, you, are, you have lots of different places where you can control things. So let's take labels. All, so um, all your labels are checked for accuracy. Okay, so say you have allergens in your product. And of course they are, but are you doing something that prevents a hazard that's reasonably likely to occur? And the answer may be yes, and it depends on your own facility, yeah, okay? The other thing to keep in mind is, is that we write, all, we write our, our critical control points as far down range as we can, okay? Which is why receiving, never a critical control point, unless you're doing fisheries and they've told you it is. Okay, because the further down range you are, you make your critical control point, the more likely you are to actually be controlling the hazard there because hazards can reoccur, right? And if the hazard reoccurs, you never, you never controlled for it to begin with. 
All right, so that's the next thing to consider. Okay, next I wanna think about numbering. We number our critical control points, all right? And it kind of doesn't matter how you do this, but I want you to create a system, all right? And keep it, all right? And so one of the, th like when I'm working with clients, we have HACCP one, two, three, and four, okay? if we're writing four HACCPs, and each HACCP then has critical control points, A, B, C, D, E, F, however many we have. And I want you to be super aware of what we call false cognates. There are a ton of people that got into the habit of having um, critical control points like 1B, 1C, and those mean bacteria and chemical, but then they'll do things like P, CCP, 1P, Okay, well, one, that's ridiculous to say. And two, does P stand for physical hazards or does it stand for pathogens? Okay, so just be aware of false cognates. The next thing I wanna tell you is, is your inspection personnel does not get to tell you what your CCP numbering system is any more than they get to tell you within what um, uh, software you write your HACCP plan, okay? Um, so as long as you keep things as long as you like keep things <laughs> that they are uh, um, uh, understandable to you and have a numbering system that makes sense, that is truly all you need. Um, all right, so that's critical control points. Now, critical control points all have to be documented, all right? And we document them by virtue of implementing a critical limit, all right? So it's oh, your critical control points really only make sense if you have a critical limit there, okay? So then the question becomes, what is a critical limit? A critical limit is a maximum or a minimum value to which a biological, chemical, or physical parameter must be controlled at a CCP or preventive control to prevent, eliminate, or reduce to an acceptable level the occurrence of that food safety hazard, okay? So it's the measurable things that let you know that you control the hazard, right? Does that make sense? Um, there are many instances in our food production system for which critical limits are set for you, right? Uh, some of these look like um, a one when you're cooling meat, you can only have a one log increase in clostridium perfringens. So, okay, um, if you are bringing meat up to temperature, it has to be within like four hours. If you're putting ready to eat food out there, you have to have um, like a five log reduction in salmonella. Um, you have to bring, you know, like, so cheese, this is a great example, 60, 60 days. Raw milk cheese has to be aged for 60 days because we've determined that's like a number of days that will reduce the pathogen loads, okay? So there are all sorts of things in all sorts of directives that tell you what your critical limits are. You have to be aware of them. And here is my plea to you. Okay, so if you are like watching me live on um, the proofing box, this is my plea. If you are going to make nuts for a living, like any kinds of nuts, peanuts, I have a ton of people come to me who are doing um, uh, processing of indigenous nut products. So they're, you know, I mean, nuts are how a lot of trees populate um, and we can eat a lot of them. 
And so there are a ton of different kinds of nut products out there. And people come to me and they're like, I want to import and sell roasted nuts. Here's the thing. All roasted nuts have salmonella and sugar toxin E. coli as reasonably likely to occur. Because if you look at how these things are recalled, they're, that's what they're recalled for. Okay. And the salmonella comes in through uh, cross-contamination of um, rodents and, um, and, and people. Okay. Fecal oral transmission, rodents and people because of bad GMPs. And then, um, and then also a lot of nuts are wild harvested and uh, birds poop in the woods. I know you needed to tune into a podcast to find that out, but birds do poop in the woods. And um, salmonella is reasonably likely to occur on all nut products. And uh, friends, that does include coconuts. There's salmonella on the outside of your coconuts. All right. And then there's, um, then sugar toxin E. coli has also been implicated because birds can transfer sugar toxin E. coli. And in many places where we have cleared the rainforest and planted cattle <laughs> in concentrated animal feeding operations, and why, yes, Brazil, I am looking at you. Um, the, 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 the sheer volume of sugar toxin E. coli blows in the wind and can blow on nut products that are harvested in the rainforest down from uh, concentrated animal feeding operations. All right, so you have to know this and you have to, in the nut process, it's like almost impossible. There's no, like I will tell you, there's like no such thing as raw nut, okay? Um, and you have to control for salmonella and in some cases, sugar toxin E. coli if it's been demonstrated in your product and in some nut products it has. What's really difficult is when folks come to me and they've been roasting their nuts and they have quality parameters. Like I really like it when my nuts are roasted to this level. Okay, nuts are very high in fat and I get that roasting can create burn, right? And like burn the oils in, in, in your nuts and then they don't taste as good. But the problem is, is that if you dry roast nuts, salmonella gets harder and harder to kill, okay? And so it is really difficult to dry, it's not impossible, but it's difficult to dry roast nuts to a point where you know that the salmonella is dead, okay? So then the question is, is what are you going to do about that? And my recommendation, the easiest way forward for most small processors, okay, is to blanch the nuts and then dry roast them because salmonella dies like that in boiling water, okay? So, and I mean, it's like that, it's like two minutes, but um, salmonella has a definite kill time in boiling water, okay? And we can kill, um, and we have like tables that validate that because we validate it against, uh, we validated against listeria, all right? And listeria is harder to kill than, than salmonella in boiling water. And so if you kill listeria, you have killed the salmonella, all right? So boiling water, and then you dry roast them, okay? Or you steam inject during roasting, or you blanch them in oil, which is kind of the same as uh, boiling them in water, all right? I mean, it has flavor differentials, but from a bacteria death point, it's the same thing. Okay, so that is my plea to you, is that if you are out there doing nuts and nut products, please be very, very, very aware of salmonella. And if you have questions, bring them to the proofing box page so that I can help you before you go marching down the primrose path of death and destruction and you say, hey, Dr. P, I need a HACCP plan. That's impossible to validate because you're cooking your nuts to 120 degrees. 
Like that does not dry roasting nuts to 120 degrees in no way, shape or form will ever kill salmonella. The end. And if you want to sell your product, you've got to live with that reality. And so a lot of times when we talk about critical limits, people get super upset with me, but a lot of them are dictated to you by the government. Okay. Or by best practices that the government has adopted. All right. And that's what I got to tell you. All right. So there are some good examples of critical limits. Critical limits are always measurable and implementable and very, very specific. They are things like time and temperature and pH, belt speed, things are on and functioning. They are not things like all employees wash their hands. That is never a critical control point. Um, average time and temperatures. And then another thing um, that I find every so often in critical limits is you set a critical limit and it's wrong. All right, so again, that kind of gets back to the nut example. So you can measure it, but you gotta measure it correctly, all right? It is incredibly important to know that if you miss a critical limit, by legal definition, your food may be adulterated. You're probably gonna have to do rework, all right? And there may be, especially if you're in USDA, regulatory things that you have to go through, all right? So missing a critical limit is a big, fat, hairy deal. And that's why we spend so much time on them, okay? And so you have to be able to evaluate, like if you miss a critical limit, you have to know when you missed it, why you missed it, what's going wrong in your system, and the question that your auditor or your inspector or whatever will ask you is, is how do you know it wasn't missed at another time, okay? So that's, that's like the bulk of the information about these critical limits. You can go out and find these critical limits. Like if you come to the proofing box, I, I have a ton of stuff in the files that I can provide critical limits for you. The Code of Federal Regulation will often have critical limits. Um, FDA and FSIS, CFIA, the Canadian Food Inspection Authority, EFSA, the European Food Safety Agency, Hong Kong also has some really good critical limit stuff. Lots of industry associations have really, really good stuff. Um, you can always ask, if you are in um, meat processing, we have a thing called the Niche Meat Processors Assistance Network, and there are a ton of people on there, me included, other, you know, other HACCP um, uh, consultants and that sort of thing will help you. Uh, and then um, there are like Facebook groups and stuff like that. I'm on the Salt Cured Pig. You can come here, a um, bunch of other places that you can, um, that you can look at, okay? Your critical limits will probably need SOPs, all right? Because not everybody is born knowing how to set the belt speed on your piece of equipment. And so you might wanna write work instructions or an SOP to help that to give you the best chance of actually meeting your critical limit, okay? And then we have other types of limits. Okay, so critical limits are the limits at which like the salmonella dies, that, that the, you know, things are filtered so that uh, physical hazards don't get through. However, my urging and my recommendation is that you also have operating limits, okay? And operating limits are tighter tolerances than critical limits so that you know you're always meeting your critical limits. So for instance, if you're aging raw milk cheese, your critical limit is gonna be 60 days for your raw milk cheese, all right? 
but you may not go in and sell any cheese until it's been aged 62 days because 62 days is your operating limit. And you know, if you've met your operating limit, you've met your critical limit, okay? Now there are things to think about with that. I'm not gonna lie, you know, it adds operating limits, tighter tolerances, adds inventory cost. Um, they add to how much, like how much work you put into a, a product. So uh, I was talking with a client and he was beef jerky and um, he had to cook his beef jerky in 100% humidity oven uh, to 158 degrees for a minute, as I'm pretty sure what Appendix A says. Uh, and he was cooking it to 165. Now, if you're making one batch of beef jerky, who the heck cares? But when you're making batch after batch after batch after batch of beef jerky, that extra time and temperature of that seven degrees makes kind of a big difference, okay? That's more money and expense in your process and it reduces your profit margins, okay? So you gotta be, you gotta just make, you gotta like think about that sort of stuff and figure out what your priority is and what, how you're gonna balance making money and mitigating risk, all right? Which is your job, right? As somebody who is doing your food safety planning. You gotta mitigate the risk, but unless you can also make money at the process, we might as all well, like pack up and go home, okay? So those are, those are operating limits, okay? You can also have specification limits. Specification limits are limits that your um, customer tells you, all right? So specification limits are not, are usually quality limits rather than actual safety limits. But it's things like if you're making hamburgers for somebody, they're gonna, they're probably gonna give you like a diameter and a thickness of the patties. If you're filleting fish, there's a like a fillet length average that you're gonna have to meet. Um, cheese wheel size um, and other, you know, like other things like that. And those are generally kind of more quality driven. All right, so. That is the overview of CCPs and critical limits. All right. Um, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. And I am going to cut over to office hours now. We're going to be publishing this as a mini-sode. But if you have questions, I want you to come to the proofing box and post questions on the live stream post. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. Be sure to join us in the Proofing Box, a private Facebook page for food producers filled with valuable information and technical tips. Grow your business by learning from people just like you, all under the guidance of a food safety expert.